Today, we're going to focus on verses one through five. And, and let me just say that I, I've taught the Gospel of John, you know, pro- probably uh, several times now over the many years of, of teaching, but you know, you always come to certain portions of scripture and you just feel like, Lord, how can I even begin to do justice to this text? And, and that's how I feel as we approach these first five verses today. Well-known verses, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him, nothing was made that was made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. So that's our challenge today, to look at these verses. If you were to write a biography on someone, you would naturally begin your accounts of their life with their birth. I've read, I've read many biographies. I, I love history and I love biographies, so I read a lot of them. And it always takes you back to the very beginning of that person's life. It takes you back basically to at least their, their, the date of their birth. And, of course, that's understandable because, practically speaking, life for each of us begins at birth. There is only one life in all of history of which that is not the case. And that is the life of Jesus Christ. For he, prior to being conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, was pre-existing eternally with the Father. And so in the verses that we read together, John 1, 1 through 18, John gives us a summary of the life of Christ beginning with his pre-existence and then coming to his entrance into the human family for the purpose of bestowing grace and making God known to man. So it's in this summary that is commonly called the prologue. It is in this prologue that the veil is drawn back and the true nature of Jesus of Nazareth is made clear. And so as John pens his gospel, and we pointed this out as we did our uh, sort of our conversational introduction, we pointed out how uh, two of the gospel writers begin their gospel with the story of the birth of Jesus. Mark, uh, doesn't include the birth of Jesus. He picks up his gospel beginning with the the public ministry of Jesus in Galilee. But here John does something entirely different. He goes back to the beginning. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, these words are a 
conscious reminiscence of the first words of the Bible. So anyone that would read this passage, any, anyone who had any familiarity with the Old Testament text, and of course the Jews would have had that, they would immediately have seen the connection with Genesis because Genesis also starts with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Interesting, in, in the beginning is actually the Hebrew title of what we call the book of Genesis. So if you read Hebrew and you had a, a, a Hebrew, uh, a, if you had a, a set of the Hebrew scriptures and you opened uh, to the first page of the Bible, um, it wouldn't say the book of Genesis. It would say in the beginning. In the beginning. So John is hearkening back to Genesis, to the beginning of time, because John is writing about a new beginning, the new creation, so he uses words that recall the first creation. And like the first, the second is not carried out by a subordinate being, it's brought about by God himself. But John refers to him here as the Logos, the very word of God who was already there in the beginning before time. Now, what we might not understand, because these aren't issues that we so much deal with today, in New Testament times and for hundreds of years afterward, Greek philosophy dominated much of the world. And one of the ideas among the Greeks, which you might have heard the term Gnosticism, the Gnostics believed and taught that all material is evil. And therefore, the world could not have been created by a good and holy God. So the world must have been created by a being that emanated out from God, but one that had, had emanated out from God, not immediately, but somewhere way, way down the line, to be disassociated with God enough still to be connected, but to be disassociated enough to be able to create matter, which was evil. So that thinking dominated the ancient world when it came to metaphysical things. And so John is going to, not overtly necessarily, but he's He's subtly undermining that and taking people back to the reality. Now, the Greeks, of course, were the ones who um, came up with a lot of these ideas and perpetuated them. John is going to go back beyond the rise of 
that kind of thinking. And he's going back to the very beginning. And he says, in the beginning was the word. This is the Greek word logos. Now again, this is a very interesting way for John to open his letter. Now, something that we might not always be conscious of is that many of the Jews from the time of Alexander the Great to the period in which John is writing, many Jews had come under the influence of Greek culture. If you read in the book of Acts, and we, we have the beginning of the church there, and we read about this dispute between the Hebrews and the Hellenist. Both groups are Jewish, but one has held fast to Hebrew culture. The other has embraced Greek culture. That's why they're called the Hellenist. Now, as John is writing this, he is aware that much of the Jewish population has embraced Greek culture. And so they are going to be familiar with Greek ideas. So let's talk about this term logos for a moment. Let me read to you from a man named Donald Guthrie. He said, the term logos was widely used in Greek literature, and many scholars have supposed that its significance for John could be understood only against such a backdrop. It was used among the Stoics to describe the principle of divine reason which caused the natural creation to grow. This idea was much more fully developed in the writings of Philo of Alexandria. This is a this is an important point here. Philo of Alexandria. Alexandria became next to um, Jerusalem. It was probably the, the epicenter of Jewish life and especially Jewish Hellenistic life. Alexandria was uh, in Egypt. And so in Alexandria, there was a famous Jewish philosopher a man who sought to blend Greek philosophy with Judaism. His name was Philo. He was a contemporary of Jesus and John. He used the term logos of the instrument through which the world was created. Although there may appear to be some parallels between Philo's and John's use of the term, there are crucial differences. Philo never thought of the word as a person, nor did he maintain its pre-existence to the world. But the most striking and significant difference between Philo and John is that the former denied. So Philo denied the incarnation of the word, whereas John specifically maintained that the word became flesh. So you see, John is writing this gospel and, and again, remember we pointed out, Matthew writes primarily with a Jewish audience in mind. And we know that because he's constantly going back and saying um, that certain things are happening in fulfillment of what was written. And then we know that Mark wrote with um, 
an, an audience that was made up of slaves. And he presents Jesus as the servant of the Lord. And then Luke, as we've seen, Luke is a Greek. So he presents Jesus. He emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, not to the exclusion of his deity, but he, he emphasizes things like the prayer life of Jesus, showing that he is a man who is dependent on God. But as we pointed out, John is the one who is going to make sure that we understand that Jesus is God incarnate. And so as John is, is writing with all of these things that he wants to communicate, he's also thinking about his audience. And he's wanting to reach not just the, the Hebrew Jews who would have completely rejected anything Hellenistic, He's wanting to reach everyone. So he, he takes this term that is used among the Hellenists and he says that actually the word is not some impersonal force, but the word is a person. N.T. Wright explained it this way and we heard this quote in the last study, but let me read it again. The idea of the word, or the logos, would also make some of John's readers think of the ideas that pagan philosophers had discussed. Some spoke of the word as a kind of principle of rationality lying deep within the whole cosmos and within all human beings. Get in touch with this principle, they said, and your life will find its true meaning. Well, maybe John is saying to them, but the word isn't an abstract principle, it's a person, and I'm going to introduce him to you. See, that's what John is doing. John is showing that, okay, this idea of the logos, this idea of this great, this great mind behind all things and so forth, okay, that, that's, yeah, that, that's close, but that's not it. The reality is that the Logos is a person. The Logos is both a human being and God simultaneously. I think of John's use of Logos, or I think his use of Logos it speaks, as I'm saying, of the universal nature of his gospel. Jesus is not only the savior of the Jews, he is the savior of the whole world. John is introducing Jesus to the world in terms they can understand. So he is doing what you would call contextualizing. He is contextualizing the gospel. He's taking Jewish ideas and putting them in terms that the Greek mind can relate to. So that's all sort of background type of stuff. But let's think for a moment. When John says, in the beginning was the word, what are we to understand by that? For us, we're not Greeks. We don't, we're not thinking about the logos in that way. But, but what, do, what are we to think of? Well, words are the primary and most effective way one person expresses their thoughts to another person. Isn't that true? 
I mean, this is how we communicate. This is how we come to know each other. Now, I said here, it is the primary and most effective way. There are other ways of communication, but they're not the, they're not the, the, the ultimate. Now, if, if I was up here today and I decided today, I am not going to use words today. I'm going to teach this without using words. And I'm not really good at charades, so I don't know that um, any of you would get a single thing that I was trying to say. Now, some people might be able to act it out a little better than I could. But regardless of, of how well they might be able to act it out, they're never going to be able to communicate what needs to be communicated with words. So this is the primary way that we communicate. A word spoken by one person to another is the revelation of something in the mind of the one that the other did not know and could know only through that word. So a word is a revelation made, a thought communicated. So when John says in the beginning was the word, Jesus the word is the one who reveals and communicates God to the world. That's the point. This is how we know God. God has spoken. And he's spoken through his son. But then he says this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was with God, which, which more literally uh, is the word was toward God or the word was face to face with God. And neither one of those necessarily make it that clear. But the idea is that of the closest possible connection between the word and God. So it's speaking of the, the, that deep, deep, intimate connection between the Father and the Son, which in verse 18, John brings it all to a climactic point when he says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is in the heart of the Father. He has declared him. So John is saying, the, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, so the Word and God are distinct from each other, yet simultaneously one. But here's the staggering thing. He says, and the word was God. The word was with God, and the word was God. And, and here we see, although John doesn't come out and say, okay, I just explained to you the Trinity, or the plurality within the within the divine nature. That, that's exactly what John is doing. John is showing us something that the, the Old Testament scriptures hinted at, something that Jesus taught us. And John is now bringing that out into the clear. So nothing higher could be said. All that may be said about God may fitly be said about the word. 
So note this, John is not merely saying that there is something divine about Jesus. Now, throughout history and even right down to the present moment, people are always wanting to um, bring Jesus down to a human level and in essence deny his unique deity. That, that happened way, way back in church history in the, the time of what is known as the Arian uh, heresy. That was the, the idea of Arius was that Jesus was a created being very close to God and in many ways like God, but not God. Arius brought that into prominence, but those, those seeds that, that burst forth in the time of Arius had been around for centuries. And so John is clarifying here. He is not merely saying that there's something divine about Jesus. He is affirming that Jesus is God. Leon Morris, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he said this. He said, if that is a staggering affirmation to us, there is no reason for thinking that it is any less so to the Jewish author of this Gospel. To the Jews of the day, monotheism, belief in one God, was more than a belief commonly held. It was a conviction to be clung to and defended with a fierce tenacity. The Jews knew with an unshakable certainty that there was, there could be only one God. When John says the word was God, this must be understood in light of Jewish pride in monotheism. So in other words, John never would nor could make such a claim were it not true. John is not drifting off into pagan philosophy. John is as Jewish as anyone had ever been. But he is bringing out the revelation that the God who was in the beginning was and always has been and always will be the triune God. The God who is here with John, God and the Word, and of course the Spirit is included, but he's not being spoken of here. And then he says this, to, to make it just absolutely clear what he's talking about, he says, all things were made through him. So go back to Genesis 1 for a minute. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is now making it clear that it was God the Son. All things were made through him. Having said that the word was with God and the word was God, John tells us that the word, Jesus Christ, is the one whom, through whom the heavens and the earth and everything in them were created. Now, John says that here 
And John's not the only one who says that. This claim is repeated or stated over and over again in the New Testament. So through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And the emphasis in the original language is that not a single thing that was made was made apart from him. Everything that there is was made by the word, by Jesus. There's a big debate in the culture today, right? Creation versus evolution and so forth. Naturalism versus theism. This is really a debate. You know, it's oftentimes referred to as a culture war. This isn't a cultural war. This is a spiritual war. This is a denial on the part of humanity that not only that we are created, but it's a denial that Jesus is the creator. But... As I said, the New Testament states this over and over. Colossians chapter 1. He is the image, speaking of Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn. Firstborn, not meaning that he's the first created. Firstborn means he's the sovereign over all. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. You know, as we read through the Gospels, remember when Jesus was with his disciples in a, in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and this fierce storm came up that was so fierce that these seasoned fishermen feared for their lives. And they cried out, Lord, help us. And it says that Jesus stood and he rebuked the wind and the waves. And afterward, they said amongst themselves, they said, who can this person be that even the wind and the sea obey him? John tells us he's the creator. He's the one who made all things. The author of Hebrews tells us he's the one who made the universe. Now, it is no accident that John goes straight from his statement about the relation between the word and God to creation. It's not an accident. The self-revelation of God occurs first in creation. So we believe in what some people would call revealed religion. We believe because something was revealed to us that we could not know ourselves. 
we could not find out God on our own. If God was going to be known by humanity, he would have to reveal himself. And so God's first act of self-revelation came through creation. Paul would later write to the church in Rome and say this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So the Bible teaches this. It doesn't necessarily use these terms, but this is what the Bible teaches is that there, there is general revelation that, that's given by God to humanity, and that's creation. That's what we just talked about. So God reveals himself to all people, communicating the fact that he is. There's not intimate details about exactly who he is, but just the fact that he is, is revealed through creation. As Paul says, what may be known about God, God has revealed to them his invisible qualities. So that's general revelation. But there's also what we call special revelation. And special revelation comes to us through God communicating, not simply creating, but communicating in various ways who he is. And the the climax of that communication comes in Jesus. So God's ultimate self-revelation or communication occurs in the incarnation. Creation and salvation are closely connected in the New Testament because both of them have to do with God's self-revelation. The Apostle Paul expressed that connection like this in writing to the Corinthians in the second letter. He said this. He said, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is beautifully connecting. Just like John is connecting Genesis 1 and that, that's where he begins with this. In the beginning was the word. Paul is doing the same thing. The God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth uh, was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. The God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The full revelation of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. So beautiful, the way Paul puts it. Now, verse four, in him, in the word, was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. In him was life. We know this. 
we don't always think in these terms, but it would be healthy to remember. Life is given to us. We do not possess it in and of ourselves. Life is given to us. We didn't bring ourselves into the world and we cannot help ourselves from leaving the world. You know, I, I keep thinking about this and maybe one of these days when I have more time, I'm gonna do it. I, I wanna write a book about the way things are. And here's what I mean by that. The way things are is the way things God says they are. See, God says that we do not have life in ourselves. God claims that he alone is the one who possesses life. And the reality is we do not possess life in ourselves. If we did, we would not die. We would prevent that from happening. I've been, I, I listened to this a podcast that I love called uh, The Rest is History. And it's just a, a great, I like history. So it's a, it's a history podcast done by two great British historians who are simultaneously hilarious. So it's a lot of good historical information with a lot of fun British humor involved. Um, but you know, Recently, I listened to a history on Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, all of these, all of these great men who were invincible for a moment. But then they died. And none of them had any power to prevent that from happening. And no one has any power to prevent that from happening because we do not possess life in ourselves. Life is given to us. And what does this passage say? It says, in him was life. Jesus is, the New Testament uses these terms. He is the author of life. He is the source of life. He is the prince of life. And the word prince there, it, the idea is that he is the ruler over life. So he's the author. He brought life into being. He is the source. It flows out from him. He is the one who has ultimate say-so over life. In him was life. And then it says, and that life was the light of all mankind. So only God has life within himself. And remember, Jesus will say later in this very gospel, chapter 14, verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. So here he says, or John says, in him was life. And this would be what we would think of as material life, biological life, but also spiritual life. And then this, and this life was 
and, and that light was the, was the light of mankind. What does that even mean? And I have to tell you, this is perplexing, not just to me. It's perplexing to most commentators. And that life was the light of mankind. What does that mean? Well, my best guess is that it's a reference to the life of God that brought our lives into being, which Genesis refers to as us being created in the image of God. Now, if you go back to Genesis and you see there the record of of the creation of mankind, you see that God forms man out of the dust of the ground so he, he takes existing material and he forms the human body. But then it says this, and God breathed into the nostrils and man became a living being. So there's the material element of us, our bodies, but then there's something else that animates the body and this is the life of God. And, and you know, in Genesis, when it says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, the Hebrew word for create there is a word bara, which means to create from nothing. There's another word that's used in the account of creation in Genesis. It's a Hebrew word asa. It means to form out of existing material. So sometimes, like when God creates the body of Adam, he forms that body out of existing material. But when God breathes into Adam the breath of life, this is the word bara. So it's not some existing material, but it's coming forth from God himself. So when, when John tells us here that Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of all mankind, it could be, and I think it's probably the best way to understand it, that he's talking about the fact that our life is that spark, if you will, of the divine nature that brought us into being. That we... Genesis calls it the image of God. Sometimes you hear us use the term the imago Dei. That's a Latin phrase for image of God. But now, final thing that he says. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, here's an interesting thing. I'm reading, we're reading, you know, out of the NIV. The, the earlier translation of the NIV, the 1984, it doesn't say overcome, it says understood. And in the New King James Version, it says comprehend. So the possible translation is the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome or extinguished it or understood and comprehended it. And it actually, because the word can mean 
Either one. That's why some translations tr translate it one way and some translate it the other. They're trying to understand from the context, okay, what is he saying about this um, light shining in the darkness and, and the darkness is not able to what? Well, I think it's actually both. The darkness, and, and this is the context, the darkness has not comprehended or understood, but neither has it nor can it overcome. See, that's the, the glorious thing. The world is full of darkness. And sometimes we feel like the darkness is going to overcome everything, but it's not. It never will. Why? Because of Jesus. Because he is the light of the world. But think about this for a moment. So the darkness did not overcome or extinguish, uh, but let's talk about the darkness not comprehending or understanding. The British atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, on one occasion, he describes this himself, and he's, he's marveled by it, actually. On one occasion, he felt compelled. He was out in nature. And he, by the beauty of, of what surrounded him, for, for a moment, he was overwhelmed with a sense that he should, he should give praise and thanksgiving. But of course, he was an atheist, so who could he give praise and thanksgiving to? <laughs> but... But in him, there was this sense. So, you see, the darkness, Bertrand Russell, he couldn't comprehend, he couldn't understand why he felt that way. But at the same time, the darkness in his own mind through his atheism could not overcome the urge to praise. And this is true. It's true of the universal knowledge of right and wrong in all of us. We, don't, we can't comprehend it. Why, why do we feel that way? Why, why do we think like that? And we can't stop it. It's there. Even, even though we might educate ourselves to say, no, that's, that's religious. We don't, we don't want that. We, we still can't escape it. The passion for justice or the belief that there, there, there should be justice in the world. All of these are glimmers of the light within us due to our creation in God's image. Glimpses of the light that lights all mankind. You see, left to ourselves, we don't understand it. We can't comprehend it. Jesus came into the world to make it known why that is our experience. It's our experience because we are not cosmic accidents. We are creatures made in the image of God. The word Jesus is the light of the glory of God that shines brightly in the midst of the darkness. 
the undimmed light that shows the way to God and the way of God, the light that will never be extinguished, but will ultimately banish the darkness from the world. That's what's stated here as well. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it, cannot extinguish it. The devil and evil people have attempted many times to put out the light of the gospel in the world. And sometimes it looks like there's nothing but a, a small, the tiniest ember that is even left, a spark. But that spark cannot be put out. And man, it'll, it will rekindle a great flame. And it has over and over and over again. I think of all the decades that the Soviet communists try, uh, you know, they, they tried to stamp out the gospel. The, the belief in God, the belief in Jesus, they tried to stamp it out, not just in Russia, but in, you know, all of their satellites. But what happened in the end? Communism died and the gospel reemerged. And that's what happens over and over again. And so today, he will banish the darkness from your world. He is the true light. He will banish the darkness from your world as you come to know and trust and grow in him. So in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And we'll get to verse 14. And the word became flesh. The word became human.